Acts 5, 12 through 42. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing the sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles and brought them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison securely shut and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand, to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles aside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not go and speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Father, we have prayed today and we have asked you that you might bring revival to our nation, but Father, how can that revival come unless it first comes to your church? And so we pray today, Father, that you would fan the flames of our passion for you, that you would begin a revival within us. Father, that you would then give us the boldness to speak as we ought to speak. Father, I pray for anyone listening right now who doesn't yet know your son Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. I pray today that they would experience your love, that they would be changed by your grace. Lord, take your word now, we pray, and use it in each of our lives as you intend. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 5, the passage that was just read for us. Uh, Last week, our pastor emeritus, Brother Larry, did an outstanding job preaching to us from the first part of Acts chapter 5, where you find the unforgettable story of two people, a husband and a wife, who drop dead in the middle of church and have to be carried out. Uh, That was a case of opposition against the movement of the church arising from within. What we find in the latter part of chapter 5 and in the chapters to come is more and more opposition against the church coming from without, coming from the outside. And we're going to see how the first church, the early church, handled that opposition. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to, uh, to go to the beach with my family. I was with my uh, six-year-old son, Titus, who's, uh, he is old enough to swim, but not quite uh, old enough to, to swim out in the waves on his own just yet. And so uh, I was kind of holding him there in, in the waves and, and teaching him something that everybody who grows up in Florida and goes to the beach has to learn at some point which is uh, how, how to handle those waves that are coming at you. And based on where they're breaking, you know, there's a couple of ways to get around those waves. Now, you can either go under them before they break, right? Or you can kind of jump up and, and bob over the top of them. And so we were kind of playing a game. He was having fun guessing, you know, which one dad was going to do, whether I was going to go under, whether I was going to go over. Now, a couple of times I unintentionally taught him what happens when you don't do either one. And when the wave just smacks you right in the face and, and hammers you down to the ground, that's, uh, that's something you can only learn uh, the hard way. But, you know, I love what Kent Hughes says about persecution in the early church in the book of Acts, and he compares it to waves. 
And it was like one wave after another coming against the early church and increasing in intensity. In chapter 5, we find the very first waves of persecution coming their way. And yet, as Hughes points out, the early church had an incredible buoyancy about them. That no matter what Satan threw at them, no matter what the world threw at them, that they were able to to just keep bobbing their heads up over the top of the waves. And, And in fact, they were actually able to get their surfboard and ride the wave. And the message and the ministry of Jesus continued to multiply and expand no matter how much some people tried to stop it. Now, we have to acknowledge that we are not facing the same level of persecution that the church in Acts was facing. Certainly, we're not facing the level of persecution that many of our brothers and sisters are facing around the world. And yet, as we've been discussing over the course of the past few weeks, persecution is increasing in the West and even in the U.S. Uh, We have come to a place now where uh, being a Christian and, and standing for Christian principles increasingly can lead to mockery or to name calling or to judgment from our culture. The waves of persecution are still small and yet as we look out on the horizon we can see that the seas are building, that the waves are starting to come. And so here is the question for us to consider. How can we, as a part of the church here in the U.S. in the year 2020, how can we do like the early church did? How can we rise above the waves? How can we even get our surfboard and ride the waves so that the message of Jesus would go forward, even in spite of that persecution? I think there's a lot to learn here from the early church. I want us to see together seven words in this story that all start with the letter P. All right, seven P's. And these seven P's are really seven keys to how we can rise above the waves of persecution coming at the church. Number one, the first P we see in this story is the word power. The word power. You know, it's It really goes without saying that the story of the early church that we've seen so far in the book of Acts is a story of incredible spiritual power. But we saw it in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and 3,000 people were saved and baptized in one day. That's power. We saw it in chapter 3 when a man who was lame from the time that he was born was miraculously healed and a couple more thousand people got saved. And here in chapter 5 in verses 12 to 16, it's kind of a summary section here about the power of the Holy Spirit working through the early church, especially working through the apostles. Look at verse 12, the beginning of that verse. It says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Particularly, it appears, as you read on, that many signs and wonders, many miracles of physical healing were taking place through the apostles. And particularly, the apostle Peter is referenced. If you look down at verse 15, it talks about how people were bringing out their sick, their sick family members, their sick friends. They were laying them on beds and cots on the side of the road so that maybe even as Peter passed by, if just his shadow might fall on them, they might be healed. 
Uh, The text doesn't tell us for sure that Peter's shadow did in fact heal them, although of course God could have worked through that means. But, But it does tell us that the crowd expected that. And they wouldn't have expected that unless a lot of miracles had been taking place at the hands of the apostles, at the hands of Peter. This was a a crazy cool time to witness the power of God on display. We see the reaction, though, to this display of power in the early church. There was a lot of different reactions that people had to what was taking place. And what we see here is, in fact, some people were, were actually afraid of what they saw. They were afraid of this power that was at work in the early church. You see it in verse 13, where it says, Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And maybe you say, well, why would that be? Why would people be so afraid that they would not dare join uh, the church and be a part of this movement? Well, we're not told precisely in this verse why it is. Perhaps some of them were even a little bit wigged out just by the miracles that they were seeing and not understanding what was happening But I think if you go back to verses 1 through 11, you find a big part of the reason. The story that we looked at last week about two people dying in the middle of the church service and having to be dragged out and buried, word of that got around. And verse 11 says, when people heard about that, great fear came upon them. In other words, they were saying, well, you know, it's, it's cool and all what, what the, what's happening with these Jesus people, but uh, I, I don't think I can be a part of that. If I join that, I might be the next one to drop dead. And so I'm going to kind of keep my distance. And, and yet we know from verse 14, there's a qualifying statement here that this was not every single person that uh, was doing this. There were some people who were being drawn to the church. Verse 14, it says this, believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. And we've been getting updates on the growth of the church throughout the book of Acts. We know it started with 120 people, and then it grew to 3,120 people, and then 5,000 people. And now it appears that the church is increasing at such a rate that they weren't even able to keep track of it. There's exponential growth taking place in the body of Christ. What an exciting time to be a part of the church. To see people being added every day to the Lord and to the body. But not everybody was happy about this movement and what was taking place. Most of the rest of this chapter is about the fact that some people were jealous of the church. Look in verses 17 and 18. You can see the, the jealousy of the religious leaders. It says, Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. The word translated in my text, indignation, is, is a word that literally means jealousy. These religious leaders were just jealous, plain and, and simple. They weren't jealous for the Lord, they weren't jealous for the work of the kingdom. They, they were just jealous. They were jealous of the attention that the apostles were receiving. They were jealous of losing their influence, jealous that people were listening to the apostles instead of listening to them. And jealousy is always an ugly thing in our hearts and can lead us to do even more ugly things. And in this case, it led them to go and lay hands on the apostles and take them to prison. Now, this was actually the second time that Peter and John had been arrested so far in the book of Acts. But this time, all the rest of the apostles, we're told, were with them. 
But that brings us to the second P, the second key to rising above the waves of persecution. The apostles had God's protection. And of course, church, so do we have God's protection in our lives. As it turned out on this occasion anyway, their stay in the slammer would be a short one. Because verse 19 says that that very night, God sent an angel who opened the doors of the prison that these apostles might be able to go free. There's actually two more times in the book of Acts where something very similar happens. In Acts chapter 12, God sends another angel to let Peter out of jail again. In Acts chapter 16, there's an earthquake that comes when they're in Philippi and opens up the prison cell for Paul and Silas, although on that occasion God told them to stay put where they were. But, but does that mean that every time that the apostles were thrown into jail, that God came or sent an angel to rescue them? Well, no, it doesn't. And in fact, the book of Acts ends with the apostle Paul being under house arrest for two years. And as church tradition tells us, he was only released to be imprisoned again and ultimately martyred for his faith in Christ. As we read on in Acts, we're going to see that James is killed for his faith. Stephen is killed for his faith as well. Church history tells us that all but one of the 12 disciples was ultimately martyred for their faith in the Lord. And so we can't draw from this story that every time we face persecution, that God is automatically going to come to our rescue and give us, like in Monopoly, a get-out-of-jail-free card. He doesn't promise to always do that. But what this story does tell us is several things. It tells us, first off, that God knows exactly where his children are. But he knows what we're going through. He knows where we are. And furthermore, if he chooses, he can rescue us at any time, from any place, from any situation. And we also know that if he doesn't choose to do that, that he has a reason. He has a purpose for what he's seeking to accomplish through our life or through our death. Notice here that God doesn't rescue them from prison and just send them home to have a cookout and play some cornhole. He, he rescues them and then recommissions them immediately to the work that they were doing. Look at what the angel said to them in verse 20. Right after they got outside the prison doors, the angel said this, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. So he said, go right back to where you just were. Go, go right back to the place where you just got arrested yesterday and start telling people about Jesus again. Notice in verse 21, they didn't dilly-dally at all, did they? They, they got up early the next morning, the text says. They went right back to the temple, started talking about Jesus again. That's the third P that we need if we're going to ride above the waves of persecution. Church, we need some perseverance. That when we get knocked down and Sometimes that'll happen because of persecution. Sometimes it'll happen just because of trials that we face in the course of life. But no matter the cause, we need some Holy Spirit-enabled perseverance to get back up, to get back in the game, to serve the Lord, to tell others about Him. The example from the book of Acts that is the most amazing to me is when Paul was beaten so badly, he was taken outside of the city and literally left to die. They thought he was dead. And yet the next day, miraculously, he gets back up on his feet after taking that beating. And what does he do? He goes right back into the very same city and tells them about Jesus again, the very people who just had beaten him the day before. 
We don't need to throw in the towel and stop telling people about Jesus just because when we did that one time, somebody called us a name. But we don't need to stop telling people about Jesus because one time somebody said they didn't like it. Church, we have good news to share with the world. And we need to persevere in sharing that good news. I love the way that the angel phrased it also in verse 20. Look at that verse again. The angel said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The words of this life. Words that bring abundant life. Words that bring eternal life. These are the words that they were given to share. The the words that we are sharing, these words of life, are words that brought us from death to life. The words that we are sharing are the only words that can bring anybody else from spiritual death to spiritual life. The words that we are sharing are words that are all about the one who was dead and who is now alive. But what a beautiful name for the good news, for the gospel, the words of this life. Because that's what it is. The question is, are we sharing those words of life? And do we truly believe in our hearts that those who are around us are dying without those words of life? If we do, we will share those words with perseverance. The next part of this story is actually pretty comical because the following morning, the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, is meeting together with their 71 members. They're they're ready for the trial to take place with the 12 apostles. And, and more or less, they send the bailiff to go to the jail to bring the apostles to the courtroom. And when he gets back, he says, there's been a slight issue. And I went to the prison, and the prison doors are shut, and the, 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 the soldiers are standing there guard, but there's no apostles, right? There's nobody inside the prison. And so the Sanhedrin, the high court is sitting there. They have no idea what's taking place, but they don't have to sit around wondering for long because a messenger comes running up and says, yeah, the, the guys that you arrested last night in the temple, they're back out in the temple again. And they're telling people about Jesus again. And while that probably annoyed the tar out of these Jewish religious leaders, if you've been with us for much of this study of the book of Acts, you should not be surprised. Because this is what they always do. When the early church was given an opportunity to share about Jesus, they took it. Here's the fourth P that we need if we're going to rise above the waves of persecution. They used whatever platform that God gave them to tell others about Jesus. Whether it was in a trial, as we're about to see in a minute, Whether it's in the temple after they've been arrested the night before, whatever the platform was, they took it and they used it. And they pointed people to Jesus. The truth is every one of us in this room has been given a platform to share about the Lord. Your platform might be the school that you attend. It might be in your neighborhood. Your platform might be in your family. Your platform might be on the sports team that you're a part of. Your platform might be the position that God has given you at your workplace. Now, now I hope you hear me. I I understand we have to be careful with that. I'm not saying that we need to necessarily take three hours to share about Jesus with our co-worker when we're on the clock and our employer is paying us, you know, to do work while we're there. 
And so there is a right time and there is a right place, and yet there is a platform that God has given us, a platform we all have because of who we are, because of the positions that we hold, because of the friends that we have. And we live in a nation where we right now have the freedom to speak openly without much fear of repercussion. And yet what I see is that many times we are today voluntarily giving up our own platform and being cowed into silence because of nothing more than cultural or societal pressure. When when we look at the story of the church here in Acts chapter 5, it's clear they were not living in a persecution-free, no reason to worry about repercussion kind of platform. They had just gotten out of jail the night before. They were now in trial. They were about to be beaten because of sharing the name of Jesus, and yet they shared his name boldly anyway. And just like we talked about a couple of weeks ago on Father's Day, we need today some men and some women who would have that same kind of boldness to use whatever platform God has given you to share about the Lord, no matter what comes as a result. Once the religious leaders were told where the apostles were, they sent the captain of the temple police to go and take them. We're told that they did not use force. They just persuaded them to come. The apostles apparently offered no resistance, but went with the guard and went to this trial before the high court. I think they went because they believed that this was another platform that God was giving them to share even with this court and all who listen about the Lord. The high priest opened the trial with the words you see there in verse 28. He said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So they had already ordered them in a previous trial to stop talking about Jesus. And and the high priest is saying, not only have you not stopped talking about him, you've filled the whole city of Jerusalem with, with the teaching about this man Jesus. You know, just as an aside, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to have said about Melbourne? Right? That the church, this church, the church in Melbourne, all those who worship the Lord here in Melbourne, have filled Melbourne with teaching about Jesus. May it be so. Verse 29, Peter speaks on behalf of the apostles. And what he says is very memorable. Yes, they had told them to stop talking about Jesus, but Peter had already told them before in chapter 4, we're not going to do that. We have to speak the things that we've seen and heard. Here's what he said in verse 29 of chapter 5. He simply said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You know, that's a good thing for Christians to remember at every age and at every stage of life. You know, when you're younger and your friends are exerting peer pressure on you to try to get you to do something that you know is not right, this is a good response. I ought to obey God rather than man. When you're older and you're working and maybe even your boss or your supervisor is trying to get you to cut corners or do something that you know is unethical, this is a good reply. I can't do that. I ought to obey God rather than man. And of course, this is true when it comes to the entire church. We ought to obey God rather than man. Now, most of the time, what we find in the Word of God is that we should, as believers, submit ourselves to 
the governing authorities that are over us. Romans 13 and other passages teach us that that is what we should do. And yet there are times when the government may tell us to do something that God has told us not to do. Or times when the government tells us not to do something that God has told us that we have to do. That's what's taking place here in Acts chapter 5. And in that case, what we must do is obey God rather than men. I don't know that this would ever happen, but if the government ever tells me one day to hand over my sermons for review, the way they did to the pastors in Houston five years ago, I would respond the way that they responded. And decline. If, if the government should tell us one day that we must begin performing marriage ceremonies for homosexual couples or face losing our tax-exempt status, then we will lose our tax-exempt status. Why? Because we must obey God rather than men. They did that. They didn't just say it, they did it. Even when prison time awaited them, even when beatings awaited them, and the church today should be no less committed to the Lord than they were. I love in verses 30 through 32 where again Peter uses the platform that he has before the Jewish high court to share the gospel with these men. Even though they had a part in sending the Lord Jesus to the cross, he, he still tells them that if you will turn to Jesus, if you will turn from your sins, that even now God will save you. The very people who convinced Pilate to crucify the Lord. This is a display of the grace and the goodness of God, even to these men. And yet, to say that they didn't receive the message well would be an understatement. In verse 33, if you look in your text, it says they were so furious that they were ready to kill the apostles right then and there. And they may have. We'll never know. Because God uses one man, Gamaliel, to calm them down. What we're going to see is that even though Gamaliel is an unbeliever, embedded in his words as the fifth P that we need to rise above the waves of persecution, it's the promise of God. Gamaliel is an interesting character. He was probably the most respected Pharisee of his day, the most esteemed teacher of the scriptures in his age. We hear his name a little later in Acts because one of his prized students in his seminary class was a young man named Saul of Tarsus that we know as the Apostle Paul. And so this man was so well respected when he spoke, people listened. And you can imagine as he stood up in the trial that a hush came over the crowd and first he spoke to those who were gathered with him and told them basically to watch themselves, to be careful about what they were about to do. And then he cites two examples from their, their own history, two examples that took place in their own lifetime, of movements that had happened. And we won't go into the details of these movements, but you see the, the ringleaders of them there in verses 36 and 37. And Gamaliel's point is that eventually both of those movements came to nothing. Once the leader was killed, the rest of the followers began to disband and disperse, and the movement came to nothing. And his point is that if what is happening with the early church, if that movement was nothing more than the work of men, then it also would come to nothing. Now, they didn't have to do anything about it. The leader of the movement, the Lord Jesus, had been killed. And his point is, if you just give it time, his followers will disperse, the movement will die out. But it's interesting what he says in verse 39, though. He says, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against 
God. You know, when I look at the whole of Gamaliel's argument, it's a little more like fatalism than it is like sound biblical theology. But with that said, what he says there at the end is true because, of course, we know that the church was from God, that he and his fellow council members were, in fact, fighting against God. And because they were fighting against God, that was a fight that they were going to lose. They would not be able to overthrow the church. I wonder today if anybody needs to hear that reminder because right now, in this world that 1 John tells us is under the sway of the wicked one. There is an attack coming against the church. It's been coming against the church for 2,000 years. It's still coming today in different ways, in different forms. And in some places in this world right now, that attack is more overt. Here, that attack for the present is more subtle. And yet, we need to be reminded of this promise. That just like this unbeliever said, 2,000 years ago, that when the world attacks the church, when the world fights against the church, they are literally fighting against God, and it is a fight that they will lose. Jesus said the same to Peter in Matthew 16. He said this, And I also say to you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church. Jesus says that. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I think it's so easy right now with everything going on in our world to to look out and to see the seas rising and to see the waves beginning to mount. And it's so easy to feel defeated, isn't it? So easy to feel discouraged. It's so easy to feel pessimistic to kind of, even in the church, to kind of have a little pity party and, you know, woe is us. But that should not be our attitude because Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But the next thing he said, the next breath out of his mouth was, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This is a promised church that can lift us above the waves of persecution. Well, the Sanhedrin listened to Gamaliel's speech and they agreed to let the apostles go, but not before they beat the tar out of them. And they lined them up, all 12 of them, and flogged them. We can't be sure, but most likely it was with 39 lashes each. And you can just picture them, the 12 of them, walking out of the courtroom with their backs lacerated and bleeding, having taken a beating for doing nothing other than speaking the name of the Lord. And their reaction to that in verse 41 is simply unbelievable. Look at their reaction. Verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Here's the sixth P to rising above the waves of persecution. It's perspective. Perspective. Now, I don't know what your perspective would have been if you were one of the 12 that day and had just taken that beating. I don't know what my perspective would have been. I guess you can't know unless you're there. But, but their perspective was unbelievable. They, they, didn't, they didn't just hold, hold their head up high and say we're going to grin and bear it and live to see another day. Even that would be commendable. We might have grumbled and complained and moaned. But they didn't even just do that. It says they rejoiced. 
They rejoice. How could they possibly rejoice when they had just endured what they had endured? Well, the text tells us because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. The stripes that they had on their back from their whipping, they did not regard those as something shameful. Rather, they regarded them as a badge of honor. Because they knew that the Lord saw them where they were. They knew that the Lord who had just released them miraculously from prison had allowed that to take place for a reason. And they rejoiced because in some way they got to share in the fellowship of the sufferings of the Lord. Paul prayed for the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. He prayed, I just want to know Christ He said, I want to know the power of his resurrection. But then he said, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. What a thing to pray for. And Paul certainly experienced that in his life. The Lord Jesus himself told us to rejoice whenever we face persecutions for multiple reasons. One, because great is our reward in heaven, but also because we're not the first people who have followed the Lord who have had to endure that. So they treated the prophets who were before you. One of those who came before us was a Romanian pastor named Joseph Zahn. He was placed under house arrest for six months, and nearly every day during that time, government officials would come to his house and carry him off and interrogate him through various means. I'm sure many of them not pleasant. They charged him with spreading propaganda and endangering the state. And here is what he said, quote, During that time, I still had to preach every Friday night and on Sundays. People listened just to see what sort of subject I would tackle. One Sunday, I preached on joy with Nehemiah 8.10 as my text. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Somebody told me, Joseph, for me, the message is just to know that for the whole week you were there at interrogation, I thought I was going to see a wreck on Sunday. But here you were with a shining face, thundering about joy. That's the sermon for me. Church, instead of running from persecution, instead of being silenced by the threats around us, we should press in even more. Speak his name even more boldly, no matter what persecution may come, because we understand that persecution, if it comes, when it comes, is not a punishment from God. Rather, it is a gift from the Lord. And it is a means that he has used and that he will use again to move the message of the gospel forward so that more people can hear about Jesus. And you know what? Throughout church history, that's exactly what has happened time and time again. Wherever persecution rises against the church, the gospel multiplies. And it cannot be stopped. It's what you see here. Look at verse 42. Look at what they did next. After rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, it says this, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease. They did not stop teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And because they did not stop, because they kept sharing about Jesus, if you look at the first verse of chapter 6, you'll see this phrase, the number of the disciples kept on multiplying. Here's the final P that I want us to see. If we're going to rise above the waves of persecution, if we're even going to be able to surf that wave so that the message can move forward, church, we're going to need some passion. 
some passion. You know, as I, as I thought about this whole story this week, and the incredible example that the apostles were here, it, it hit me that what's so often lacking in the church today, sometimes lacking in my own life, is passion. I had to ask the Lord, Lord, do I have this same level of passion for you and for the gospel that I see here in the early church? Charles Spurgeon spoke one time about this topic, and he used the example of the American naturalist Audubon. You know, Audubon spent the greater part of his life writing about the birds of America. He he was consumed with birds. One time he had the chance to go to Paris and he wrote in his journal during those days that he was in Paris how miserable he was because he didn't get to see any birds. None of the beauties of Paris meant anything for him if he couldn't be with the birds. He went to London and he felt the same way and he wrote an essay in the London newspaper. And in that essay he said these words, While I am writing, I think I hear the rustle of the wings of pigeons in the backwoods of America. Here's what Spurgeon said about Audubon. The man's soul was full of birds. Nothing but birds. He lived and he was willing to die for birds. We need to muster a band of ministers who live only for Christ and desire nothing but opportunities for promoting his glory, opportunities for spreading his truth, opportunities for winning by power those whom Jesus has redeemed by his precious blood. Men of one idea. In my reflection on this passage this week, I think that's the key to the whole thing. I don't think we'll ever be like the early church if that doesn't happen. I don't think that we will ever be able to rise above the waves of persecution that come upon us. I don't believe that we will be able to say the words that they said and rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer persecution. I don't think we'll be willing to get up the day after we've been arrested and go right back into the same public square and speak about Christ. I don't think we'll be willing to do any of that unless we are men and women of one idea, one passion, unless our lives are consumed just like the lives of those in the early church with one thing, knowing Christ and making him known. Let's pray. Father, may that be so in my life. May I be set on fire for one thing and one thing alone. Father, I pray that for every one of my brothers and my sisters who are listening right now. Set our hearts on fire, Lord, for you. Father, open our mouths that we might speak boldly. Fill us with a passion that the name of your son Jesus would be known where it is not known. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.